0: How can I follow that? <laughs> hey, that was a great song, Alan. Thank you so much. we we'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm glad you're here on a summer Sunday. And uh, I tell you, it was an exciting week around here this week. And it was great to see uh, the building being used uh, to its maximum potential. And it's great to see the bus rolling out every night, and I'm excited that we'll be rolling the bus out a week from tomorrow. It's hard to believe that SOAR is upon us, and so we'll be rolling out a week from tomorrow to go to SOAR, and uh, we have missed that. I did hear yesterday, uh, we have been concerned about the overall SOAR uh, registration. And I'll tell you that uh, the SOAR registration has exceeded our expectations for the year following the pandemic, and is actually higher than it was in 2018, which was a low, kind of a low year for SOAR, but it's higher than that. And so be praying for the SOAR conference, be praying for the speakers and for the students who will be there. Uh, I think it's important we start praying now uh, that we see these students' lives changed as they attend this conference in Dallas. It uh, Ju- starts July the 6th, we'll be going out the 5th uh, through the 8th. So First Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. I was looking uh, recently. At, uh, some statistics, the most recent uh, that I found from the Barna Research Group. They do a lot of research on faith and, and uh, that sort of thing, and, and they said that in 2016, so this, this research is five years old, uh, I'm afraid if we were to do it again today, it's probably gotten worse than it uh, was five years ago, but five years ago, in 2016, 73% of Americans claimed to be Christians and you say, hey, that's good, 73%. That's kind of like the person you meet on the street, and you say, hey, where do you go to church? And they tell you, and they hadn't graced the door in years, okay? 73% of Americans claim to be Christians. Only 45% say, I don't go to church. 73% claim to be Christians, 55% say they go to church, but get this, this is what just blew my mind. 73% claim to be Christians, 35% say they're born again. Those two things just don't go together. 73% claim to be Christians, 35% say they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only 23% of Americans in 2016 said they believed the Bible to be 100% true. That's scary. And I get this, 7%, just 7% were classified by the Barna group to be evangelicals. Now, you say, what does that mean? They had to answer yes to all of the following questions. Now, the Barna group didn't say, are you an evangelical? Because... You wouldn't know what that meant. I wouldn't know what they meant by that. They ask them these questions. And if my microphone's cutting out, we can just switch to the pulpit, Mike, because it sounds to me like it is. But so on, um, they ask them all of these questions, and if they said yes to all of these questions, they said they're an evangelical. They said, are you born again? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? They say, is your faith important to your life today? In other words, does your faith... Impact your day to day life? If they said yes, they are on the way to being an evangelical. They ask them, they said, uh, not only are you born again, not only does your faith impact your life, they say, do you feel a responsibility to share your faith with others? They said, do you uh, believe Satan exists? Do you believe Jesus lived a sinless life on earth? Do you believe the Bible's accurate? Do you believe that salvation is by grace alone and not by works? Do you believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and rules today? Let me tell you, I'd answer yes to all of those questions. I'd hope you would, too. Only 7% of those surveyed, a representative survey of the country, only 7% said they agreed with those. There's no doubt that the church has its work cut out for it. There's no doubt that there's work to do. The Barna Group asked a lot of questions as they determined whether or not they would say somebody is a Christian. But Paul narrowed it down to just three things in our text this morning. Paul narrowed it down to three characteristics that we can look at to gauge our walk, to gauge our life, to say, does my life measure up to what is expected of me as a Christian? That's what we're going to look at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Begin reading with me this morning in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, Remember, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us that what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that your word is just as true today as the day that, that Paul penned it, and Father, we know that this was written to the Thessalonian Christians and this message was for them originally, but we know also that there's a message here for us this morning. And I pray that you'd reveal that to us, reveal to our hearts what you'd have each and every one of us individually to know. Father, I pray that if there's an area in any one of our lives that needs work, that you'd reveal that to us this morning, that we may leave here changed, leave here ready to serve you more and more each and every day and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little background here before we get into the meat of the message is, as we said, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now, as we get over uh, in a little further into the letter, we find out, I believe, in in chapter three that Paul is in Athens as he writes this letter to the the Thessalonian Christians. But Paul had been there to the city of Thessalonica, which is the capital uh, there of the region of Macedonia when he was there on his second missionary journey. We find out if we go over to Acts chapter 17, that three times over the course of three weeks, Paul preached in in Thessalonica. I'll get my words out one way or another this morning, okay? Get a little tongue-tied. But uh, Paul preached three times over the course of three Sabbaths, There in Thessalonica. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 4, it tells us that as a result of those three occasions of preaching, it says, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So over the course of three weeks, Paul preached, and it says, a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few, meaning a lot of the leading women followed what he was preaching and became Christians. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, the very next verse, we find out that the leaders became envious. And if we continue reading in Acts chapter 17, we'd find out in verse 10 that Paul and Silas have to sneak away under the cover of darkness because their lives are in jeopardy because they're preaching the gospel and people are following. And Paul ends up A little ways down the road, he ends up in Athens. And Paul, you got to know he's curious to know what happened. He was there and he preached three times. And people were being converted. People were being changed. It's kind of like I would assume maybe an evangelist comes and he preaches a revival. And lots of people come to the altar. Lots of people make decisions. And then weeks later, there's no doubt that evangelist thinks, I wonder about those people. I wonder if they're still following. I wonder if during that revival movement, that decision they made has stuck with them. Probably the same types of thoughts Paul's having, so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out what's going on. And Timothy gives a report that Paul summed up here in part of our text this morning in verse 6. He says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord. This is what Timothy told him having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. He says, you took the word, and everybody in the region, everybody around saw Thessalonica, and you witnessed to them through your actions Because you accepted the gospel. He says in verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God's gone out so that we do not need to say anything. We don't even have to tell people that you're Christians because people know it when they see you. That's the kind of people we need to be, isn't it? You know, that's the kind of people. We have got a lot of those kind of people right here in Bristol Baptist Church. I'll tell you that your reputation precedes you. We'll be in town, be someplace, be at a funeral, be somewhere, and people find out that I'm affiliated with Bristol Baptist Church. They brag on you. Now, don't get the big head. Thessalonica wasn't a perfect church. It was made of humans, and so is this one. But I want you to know that your reputation precedes you just like the church at Thessalonica, but we still ought to have the goal of striving more and more to be like this every single day, and so we're not going to go down the big list of the Barna group. We're going to look at the three things Paul said about them real quickly and see how that might impact us and how we do life as the church that God has called us to be. We look back, we find these things in verse 3. Paul says, as he prays for them, he remembers without ceasing their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look first at that work of faith. Paul says that's the first thing he thinks about when he prays for them. He remembers their work of faith. Now, if you were to look up the word faith in the Webster's Dictionary, you'll find out that they're wrong, okay? They say that faith is a strong belief in something for which there's no proof. That's the way Webster defines faith. The Bible defines it in a completely different way over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The Bible says that faith is evidence. Faith is proof. Webster says faith is when you believe in something, there is no proof. The Bible says faith is the proof. And the, face of the, Thessalonian, the faith of the Thessalonian church was the evidence of the things they believed in. You see that again in verse 8 and 9. It says, From you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their faith was proven in their actions as they turned from idols, as they turned from everything else they were worshiping, and they served God. Faith is an action word. Did you know that? That's what James said over in the book of James chapter 2. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. He says, because faith without works is dead. Faith saves us. For by grace, We're saved through faith that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. But then once we're saved, our faith ought to produce works in our lives. James goes on to say faith without works is dead. The real faith of the Thessalonians is seen through their actions as they served the living God. What does it mean they served the living God? I'll tell you what I think it means. I think we can go back. And we can look at the words of Jesus, where Jesus says, you know, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Jesus says you serve God by serving others. I believe that's what we'd see if we took a look at the Thessalonian church, is they served others, they serve God. Faith. It's required for salvation. Faith is demonstrated in how we serve. You know, Brother Eric got here this morning, and I said, Hey, I got the bulletin, and I opened it up. And it's kind of like somebody else is in charge. There's a whole list of ways you can serve others in the bulletin this morning. And that's not exhaustive, because that only includes what's done here. So many other things... Outside the doors, here's true faith results in salvation, and true faith is demonstrated through our works. That's what we'd see if we looked at the Thessalonian church. Faith ought to change you. It ought to change the way you focus on others. Paul said he remembered their faith. But then he said he remembered their labor of love. Now, this is an interesting phrase here. It builds on the last one, because love is the evidence of our saving faith. We love others as we serve them. What is love? Love's not an emotion. Love is an action word. Love is how we treat others, and it's the most important thing we're called to do. You remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 9 says they loved God as they served others. But there's something deeper in the wording here. He calls it a labor of love. A labor of love. So I looked up that word labor. I thought it was interesting. Because he said a work of faith. He said a labor of love. Well, this word labor comes from a Greek word, kopos, which denotes a grueling and wearying kind of toll done to the point of exhaustion. Think about maybe a woman in childbirth. We call that labor. Here's another real-life example. Vacation Bible school. You don't believe it. You should have seen these people Thursday evening. Oh, they looked good. I'm not going to walk up to a lady and say, you look exhausted. You know, I'm told you shouldn't do that. But I'll tell you, VBS does that. It was a labor of love. It was grueling. It really was. We had some escape artist children. So I'm told I wasn't in those areas. It was wearying. You work all day. You come up here all night. It was done to the point of exhaustion for a lot of people. That's what Paul is talking about. But it's also not a one-and-done thing. You see, it's real easy to pick up this list and you say, what's something I can do so that I can say I'm serving, so I can say I'm loving others? And we say... Well, I don't want to do that. That's an every week or every month commitment. I can help feed the homeless shelter. I'm going to do that one time, and I have served, and I feel really good for a long time. Paul says that the labor of love, the labor of caring for others, is an ongoing thing. This word labor, uh, it, it denotes that it is something that goes on and on. It's an everyday type of thing. It's an every week type of thing. John MacArthur says that the labor of love that Paul's describing is an effort that strains all of one's energies to a maximum level. And you say, that doesn't sound very fun. Oh, but it's rewarding. It's rewarding. If We want to reach our community for Jesus Christ. If we want to see change in the lives around us, if we want to see every week water in that baptistry, if we want to see people coming to know Jesus Christ, it has to be a labor of love. Because guess what? When people are, are doing something just to check a box, they're not, it's not a very attractive thing, is it? But when people are doing things out of a labor of love, they're smiling. It's contagious. And you say, I want to work with that group. I want to do what they're doing. And more people want to be involved. It becomes contagious. If we want to see more and more of our community come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, it requires a labor of love. It requires getting off the church pew. It requires getting out of our comfort zone and doing something maybe we thought we'd never do before. It requires us to be to think about others instead of thinking about ourselves and it may require working to the point of exhaustion from time to time but it's worth it and I'm thankful that there's so many people in this church that quite obviously view their work for the Lord as a labor of love it's very evident as we look around but you know what even though there's so many that already do that There's room for more to join in on this list and in a lot of other roles. Gets you something to pray about. You know, I promise you something. If you pray about it, if you pray, Father, you just show me if you want me to do something in the church. I can tell you how he's going to answer. He's going to say, yeah, I want you to do something in the church. You just got to figure out what it is. I hope you'll plug in and do something. And one last thing. Paul remembered their patience of hope. So he remembered their work of faith, he remembered their labor of love, and he remembers their patience of hope. Now, the NIV says this a little different. And I like the way the NIV says it. it, it instead of patience, it says endurance, it says their endurance inspired by hope. Their endurance inspired by hope. Inspired by hope of what? Hope in the return of Jesus. Look back at verse 9 again. Paul says, for they themselves, these are the people talking about the uh, Thessalonians, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Unsaved people are not waiting for Jesus. They have no hope. You wonder why the United States seems to be so hopeless. You wonder why you turn on the news and it's just a hopeless state out there. Well, if you go back to those statistics we started with, you find out why everything's so hopeless. Because there's a lot of folks not saved. By and large, probably the majority of the country is not saved. They have no hope. But those of us who are saved, Paul says we have hope. We have endurance. We have the ability to keep on. We have the ability to continue serving. You say, I've worked to the point of exhaustion. Just like it talks about in the labor of love, and I'm just give out. But guess what? I'm going to keep going because I have endurance inspired by the hope that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes back, I don't need to be sitting around twiddling my thumbs waiting on him. Read 2 Thessalonians. Paul wrote a whole letter to him about that. Don't need to be just sitting around twiddling my thumbs waiting on him. I need to be at work serving him. I need to be at work telling other people about him. I need to be sharing my faith. I need to be serving. I need to be loving. Because our endurance, the only way we continue this work of the church, the only way we continue serving others is when we are inspired by the hope that Jesus is coming again. That's what Paul told the Thessalonians, that's what Paul said. That at this point, that's how they're serving the Lord with the patience of hope and endurance inspired by hope. He said, Don't sit around focusing on politics. There's a lot of people obsessed with politics, you know that? There's a lot of church people absolutely and totally obsessed. Politics. Get over it. Okay? Get over it. There's not a candidate out there that's Jesus Christ. There's not a candidate out there that rates anywhere close to it. Get over politics. Focus on Jesus. You see, when we focus on politics, we stop doing what we're supposed to do, and we start making everybody mad. We're supposed to love others, not make them mad. There's a lot of people out there who are so caught up, so caught up looking for the signs of the time that they miss the whole point of everything else. Paul doesn't say sit around looking for the signs of the time. He says have hope that Jesus is coming again. Don't sit around looking for the signs of the time. Be busy working until he comes The church at Thessalonica was vibrant. The church at Thessalonica was victorious. It was contagious, if we can use that word here, post-pandemic. They'd have probably had to wear a face mask to keep from spreading Jesus all over people, okay? They were living every day with the expectation that Jesus was coming again. And that gave them hope. It gave them hope they could face today and whatever today brings, because Jesus is coming again. They lived patiently with this hope, and their faith spread throughout the entire region of Macedonia, and it spread beyond the region, because they had hope that Jesus is coming again, and that's the kind of church that I pray that will always be. This morning, as we're going to prepare for an invitation, you may be here and you may be saying, I don't know anything about that hope. Because you see, Paul, he he pointed out, he pointed out their work of faith, he pointed out their labor of love, and he pointed out their patience of hope or their endurance inspired by hope. See, if you don't have that hope, you can't do the rest of it. Jesus is coming again. He's promised that. Jesus said, if I go, I'm coming again. Guess what? He went. He's coming again. If he came back today, do you know you'd go with him? If the trumpet sounded today, do you know that you'd be called up? If you don't, it's real simple. Paul said in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'd be saved. And he goes on to say, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then you have hope. Because when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise, and then we who are alive and remain are called up together with them in the air, guess what? You'll be there with us. This morning, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this morning, if you say, I have no hope at all the resurrection, I hope you'll catch me. I hope you'll catch Brother Eric. I hope you'll come to this altar. I hope you'll give your life to Christ. If you want to talk more about it, just let us know. This morning, maybe you want to pray and you want to ask the Lord to show you where you can plug in, maybe in one of these ministries. Maybe you want to say, Lord, where can I find my labor of love for you? I'm convinced he'll show you. You're serious about it. This morning, whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, let's take care of that as we stand and sing. Number 100.